Welcome to I Hate It Here, the podcast for HR and people professionals, making the hardest job in the world just a little bit easier. I'm Hibi Youssef. Biases and stereotypes, they actually show up on every single step of the way and multiple times on only one of the steps. One of the ways to embed inclusion is help and teach recruiters to, okay, there are multiple options. Why don't we give the candidate the opportunity to choose what works for them? Stop thinking about their resume like a compilation of their past successes and start thinking about your resume as a marketing platform or a marketing tool between a million remotes about the role that you want to have. There is a lot of evidence that actually shows that whenever you are building inclusive talent practices from beginning to end, you can hire more talent, you can hire talent faster, and your talent stays for longer. Let's pause, review, reassess, and rebuild. Every org needs social managers, including yours. Want the key to attracting, hiring, and retaining a good one? Hootsuite's 2023 Social Media Career Report has just the answers. Just Google Hootsuite Career Report. Are you struggling to prove the value of your performance management programs to your executive team? You need 15.5. 15.5's easy-to-use software enables HR leaders to continuously measure the impact of performance to drive business results. Visit 15.5.com demo to schedule a demo today. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the I Hated Here podcast, all about workplace cultures and how to make them better. Today's guest is Danny Herrera. Danny, welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I know. I need to come up with another way to be like, I'm so excited because I'm so excited about all my guests all the time. I'm just excitable. <laughs> As you should. Like every single person you had was exciting. So yeah. Yeah. And you too. I'm so pumped you're here. We just like instantly bonded from the second we met. And I can't wait to dig into today and all of the things that we're going to cover. But first, do you want to introduce yourself to everyone so they know who you are? Yeah, sure. So I'm Danny. My pronouns are she and her in English and ish in Spanish. I'm a DNI consultant. I don't even want to do the math anymore, but I have a little over 18 years of experience in all things talent and talent operations and recruitment. And then for the last seven years, I've been exclusively focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion and how it, you know, relates to the talent experience, like the entire thing. And then on top of that, what I also do is I do help historically excluded talent navigate, you know, like tricky interview processes or or processes that might not be inclusive. I love that. So you've like seen some shit in that 18 years. I I have. (laughs) We're going to get into the shit today. Uh, But first, before we do, the question I love to ask everybody who joins the pod, what is your one HR hot take? DNI should not report to HR. They should be two completely different departments. Yes, they should collaborate. They should work together. But HR sometimes hinders DNI progress. I absolutely agree. I cannot, like, who's going to audit me? Like, I can build everything that's, like, beautiful and great, but also I sometimes can build it incorrectly or exclude somebody that I might not even realize I'm excluding. 
and I get it, right? Like I've worked in talent. Sometimes we do have like way too many competing projects and, and priorities. And I understand like sometimes we do have to pay attention to to the policy and making sure that everything is, you know, like legal. Of course, in DNI we also have to do that. But sometimes HR takes that a little bit too far <laughs> and and forgets to think about like the individuals and especially historically excluded individuals. It's pretty interesting. So when you're an HR team of one, you often don't get the resources for like a DEI person or even like you are just asked to do everything. But what I do feel like when an organization grows and scales, having those be two separate entities is really crucial for the inclusion of your employees. So I'm with you. You won't hear me disagreeing with that at all. Um, Okay, so we came in hot. Let's keep it rolling. (laughs) Okay, I want today, I want us today to focus on inclusive hiring practices. And that means so many different things. But in your 18 years of work, I know you've seen it. So let's dig into that. What does inclusive hiring mean to you? And why is it important? Yeah, and that's a great question actually because as you mentioned like every every single person or every single company may have like a different understanding so the way that i usually like to explain it is making a difference between diversity recruiting or diversity hiring and inclusive recruiting and equitable hiring so what many companies are doing, which which I understand, I mean, I understand the goal and it, and the goal should be, you know, like hire a diverse workforce and that's great. And that's diversity hiring, right? Like when you are putting all of your effort and your resources and trying to attract and hire diverse talent between a million or quotes, again, that's diversity recruiting. And again, it's a great thing to do. But sometimes we forget to focus on the inclusion and the equity and the accessibility part. So inclusive hiring is making sure that the entire talent experience process is, again, inclusive, equitable, and accessible. And what that means is that we will need to break down the entire process into a million tiny pieces to try to find where we have embedded biases that they might be systemic biases or our own biases that we are kind of bringing into into work, where we may have some stereotypes that also may probably make their way into the processes and the policies and the systems and the platforms that we use, or where some of the legacy systems that the company has, they might be kind of outdated. They probably weren't updated in, in decades. <laughs> so definitely not following processes without questioning ourselves, like why we are doing something the way that we do it. So that is inclusive hiring to summarize is again, making sure that every single step of the interview process, the sourcing process, the hiring, the making an offer process, the onboarding process is equitable, accessible, and inclusive. It's been really interesting to see the evolution of recruiting in like the post pre-pandemic and post-pandemic. So I think like previously, like people really wanted you to show up in person and you weren't really thinking through like, is this a hundred percent accessible to everybody? And then when we went remote, I feel like there was like a magnifying lens on recruiting and everyone was like, this is not okay. Like this doesn't actually serve everybody who is trying, you're trying to reach. And so I loved that definition. And I think it's it's so important for today's workforce because now more than ever, we're distributed, but we're also learning more and more about what inclusion actually means as we become, I think, like more distributed. And we understand more about neurodiversity and how that shows up in an interview. Like I'm loving the conversations happening on LinkedIn about 
how to support a neuro neurodivergent workforce, which I feel like five years ago, we were not having that conversation. 100% of the same thing for physical disabilities as well, right? Like, even before, like, pre- I don't, I don't really like to call it like pre-pandemic because I mean, COVID didn't actually went away. It's still, still very much around still, us. So yep. I, I usually call it like pre-lockdown, if you may. So pre-lockdown, like recruiting processes and hiring processes and the workforce itself, it was, you know, like very traditional. You had to be in the office day in and day out. And that excluded so many people. And yes, of course, like people with disabilities and talent with disabilities, but also like if you think about it, we were excluding talent that for whatever reason, maybe didn't have the uh, economic means to live, you know, nearby in a city office in a city or people that were just excluded in a regular interview process, either because the way that they looked, I mean, beauty bias is also huge in some industries. And again, being remote and having hybrid workforces, that's, you know, opening more doors for talent that maybe didn't have the opportunity to have the jobs that they really wanted to have and that they were, you know, like really capable of doing just a couple of years ago. The beauty bias one is so interesting because they've just passed all these laws about like hair discrimination. And it's been great to see those. But also the dark side of that is it's really sad that we had to pass laws to counteract that. <laughs> it's extremely sad. And, and yes, I'm I'm actually happy to see those laws passing. Absolutely. But again, it's very sad that we actually had to do it. We still have a long way to go. I mean, fatphobia is, of course, like huge in interview processes. We recently learned again that um, biases against women, like women are never the right age for any job at any point of their lives. So there is there is so much that we need to tackle. Right. And again, I, I do believe that having the opportunity and the chance to choose whether you want to work in the office or at home, it's actually opening more doors. Yeah. When you said women are never the right age, I feel that all the time. I People comment on my age all the time and it makes me very uncomfortable. And they'll be like, well, I'm just yes. going to guess how old you are. And I'm like, why does it matter? And someone was like, oh, you're like, you're so successful for somebody who looks so young. And I'm like, that is the wrong thing to say. Like, It is why the wrong thing to say. Just like, don't comment on people's, you know, per, like face, weight age just feels wrong. So that, that brings up a really good point, though, about bias and the role that it plays in the hiring process. But what role does unconscious bias play in the hiring process? And is there any way to actually mitigate the unconscious bias that might show up? The very first thing that I usually mention whenever I have like these conversations or whenever I work with companies and try to train them and help them make their processes a little bit more inclusive, like the very first thing that they need to know is we cannot remove, we cannot eliminate unconscious biases, right? Like unconscious biases, they're a part of the way that we think. They're a part of our brains. We cannot remove them. We can minimize them. And the way to minimize them is, again, embed inclusion, intentionality, accessibility, and equity in the processes that we follow. So, for example, in the recruiting process, I think that we we all know, like, the, the entire process is, is uninclusive by design. Like, let's let's just call yeah. it. It's uninclusive by design. It's It's been very, it's very, been very exclusionary, like, since we started recruiting talent. But one thing that happens and, and like 
maybe putting a magnifying glass onto a very specific part of the process is whenever we interview talent and whenever we ask them questions, right? Like we were told at some point of our careers, especially if you've done recruiting, that behavioral questions are maybe the answer to all of your diversity, equity, and inclusion was during the interview process, right? But behavioral questions can also become very biased very quickly, especially when we focus our questions in past experience instead of focusing on what the person could potentially do in the future with the skills that they have and, you know, with the will and the potential that they have, right? So that is only one example. One of the things that we usually look into is reviewing the questions that we ask during the interview process. Are they biased? Are they not biased? Are we looking only into past experiences or are we giving people the opportunity, you know, to showcase exactly what is it that they can do? Being completely disconnected from the company that they worked in the past or the opportunities that they were afforded or their personal past experience. So that's only one situation. But honestly, biases and stereotypes, they actually show up on every single step of the way and multiple times on only one of the steps. Like for recruiters, one of the things that they are doing pretty much all day long is reviewing resumes. Mm -hmm. And biases can show up like Hundreds of times on only one resume, like from their name, the email address that they have, the location, the company that the person worked in the past, the skills that they have, the university they went to, if they went to university, if they didn't go to school. So there's so many things that we could tackle. And again, the best way to minimize them is to embed inclusion and equity and then and guide not only recruiters, but interviewers and Harry managers on how to make every single step of the way a little bit more inclusive. So a very quick example could be like phone screens, which is like very common in recruiters. Um, like they look at the resume, they decide if they want to interview the person and they just go ahead and immediately schedule what they call a phone screen, which is like a first conversation with a recruiter. And We've been doing phone screens over the phone for decades without even thinking, who are we excluding from the conversation, right? So going back to something that we were just talking about a couple of minutes ago, like if the person needs, for example, to read lips or if they benefit from actually seeing the other person because it helps them, you know, concentrate and having a more productive conversation, or maybe they need to have an ASL interpreter along them, or maybe they need to read subtitles during the conversation for a million different reasons. We cannot do that on a phone screen. So one of the ways to embed inclusion is help and teach recruiters to, okay, there are multiple options for you to do this exact same thing that you were trying to do. Why don't we give the candidate the opportunity to choose what works for them? And that's, Again, the same thing that we need to do throughout the entire process. My God, I never thought of phone screens like that. Like, honestly, when you just said that to me, a light bulb went off because I'm just conditioned to think like we have to do a phone screen every time. And usually I also just, I do them, prefer to do them on Google Meet so I can like see people. Yeah. But you're, you're right. I've never thought, and I feel so bad about this to anyone I've ever interviewed, like I've never offered the option to say, is this what works best for you? Exactly. And and that's what it's all about whenever I think about inclusive hiring is 
putting the candidate first, like putting the human being first and putting the other person first and stop thinking about what's convenient for the recruiter or the process that we have in place. And that again, that we've been following (laughs) for decades without even like stopping to think about like, why are we doing it the way that we are doing it? Uh, I have so many follow-up questions too, but like that just made me want to go home. That just made me want to leave this and like rethink our entire hiring process. Cause I'm like, yes, am I even yes. hiring do, inclusively? Do that. Yes. We, we need to do that. Yes. I think everyone should always be revisiting their hiring process. Cause yes. hiring is where I see so many problems that happen. Like you brought up the point about college, like your resume and having a college degree. And I feel like a lot of companies have like removed that requirement, which I love because they have literally statistically shown how successful you are is not determined by where you went to college. It's how much money you had growing up. So it's just like there's so many data points out there that point to the fact that like we have been conditioned, unfortunately, to believe one thing. We've built a lot of our hiring processes around that perspective. And this is the opportunity to actually rethink them. 100%. And also we know that some of the most expensive schools, at least here in the United States, which like blows my mind, they actually train and condition their students on how to approach an interview process and, you know, like the corporate world between a millionaire quotes. And we know that some other schools are not giving their students the same tools and the same resources, even though they might be studying like the exact same thing, the exact same career. So at the end of the day, as you were saying, is about like how much money you spend and the network that you were able to build at school and has absolutely nothing to do with your actual skills and what you learned. Yeah. Uh, that That's like a whole other episode we could dive yeah. into because that like <laughs> resumes really bother me though. Like one yes. sidebar on this because I'm like how I read a resume and I'm like all a resume does is celebrate all your past successes, which I understand yes. we've all been conditioned to make a resume. But what I think is more interesting is like those past successes are great to read about, but they're not necessarily indicators that the person is going to be successful in my org. That's a very different, like, I wish there was a way you could apply for jobs without resumes. I do too. I mean, I I do have like a very personal and strong opinion about like resumes and cover letters and thank you notes and, and all of those things. Before I tell you that, one of the things that I've been helping, you know, talented candidates to do whenever they're building their resumes is stop thinking about their resume, as you said, like about like a compilation of their past successes and start thinking about your resume as a marketing platform or a marketing tool between a million workloads about the role that you want to have. Yes, of course, at some point you will need to talk about some of the things that you learned and some of the things that you've done, obviously, but It's not a summary of every single little thing that we've done and that we've learned. It's about what we can do in the future. So that's that's one thing. And then about my opinion about resumes and cover letters. So cover letters and thank you notes, I absolutely hate them, to be completely open and honest with you. I think that they actually introduce more biases into the process. They introduce more inequity and more opportunities for the process to be inaccessible and uninclusive for many, many people for a million different reasons. And then resumes, I mean, I hate them, but at this point, we can't live without them. They're, they're, you know, like, they're a global tool, right? Like, if you go to any single country in the world, like, everybody's doing and using resumes. 
what I've been noticing though, especially with a younger generation is yes, resumes are important, but you know, your personal brand and the way that you show up on LinkedIn or some other like social media channels, they also funnel information into your skills as well. So I think that there are some other ways that we could be looking into someone's experience that actually goes beyond just the resume. This is such a privileged take. I will acknowledge that. I do not apply for jobs that have a cover letter requirement. I'm like, you want me to write a letter about why I should get a job there? You should be writing me a letter on how you're not going to like make my experience miserable and uninclusive. What about that? Can employers start doing that? Can we get permission slips? First and foremost, like, why do you need a cover letter? If if a candidate is already applying to your job, if they're already talking to you and spending their time and their energy and sometimes their money, if they actually have to commute and meet with you one-on-one, they're already interested in the job. You don't need a letter that actually says like, hey, I'm interested in chatting with you. They already are. Yeah. The second thing about cover letters is they, again, they introduce some inequities into into the process. And again, this kind of goes back to what we were just talking about, like the schools and and people having like more access or less access to resources and how to write cover letters and, and all of that. And the other thing about cover letters is recruiters don't read them. <laughs> so why... It's so I'm laughing, but it's like so true. I've never met a recruiter. Like, why are we even asking for something that we are not even going to read? Right? Because if we had like, again, like, let's think about it from a recruiter's point of view, they probably are working on either 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 different positions at the same time. Especially now with the market as it is, they're receiving like hundreds of applications every single day. So that means that they have to be reading hundreds of resumes, reading and responding hundreds of emails. And on top of that, they are not going to read a cover letter. So if you don't need a cover letter, don't ask for one. Now, I understand that some roles, like, I don't know, maybe journalism, you want to, you may want to see like if someone has, you know, the skills to write something. But again, you don't necessarily have to do that on a cover letter. You can ask the person for, you know, work samples or a portfolio. So that's what I mean that we need to deconstruct like entire recruitment process and look how and ways to embed inclusion and equity. And that's a very, very specific and great example of it. One of the things that we've been doing automatically for decades, just because we want to do it, we don't even know why we do it. We don't even read that information, but we do it because everybody else is doing it, right? So let's pause, review, reassess, and rebuild. When you're thinking about recruiting teams, it's like how many barriers to entry are you creating for the candidate? Because the the cover letter barrier Honestly, all of them. It just feels like, honestly, that it's every way we recruit is set up to fail the candidate at times. Yes. Like if you get hundreds... Let's say you get hundreds of applications. We'll probably read the first 50, right? But what if the actual best perfect candidate is candidate 98 to apply, but their resume never gets seen, they never get screened, they never get called? And that's why, and and I'm going to bring another hot take here, and I know that probably like 90% of the HR and recruiting world does not agree with me on this. That's why I also hate referral programs. Oh, same. <laughs> it doesn't agree with you. I also hate that. 
I mean, I get it, right? Like it, it makes it easier for everybody. Like you already have someone that it's kind of pre-vetted because already, you know, like they work with somebody else. So that alone is biased on itself. But referral programs, what they do, they are on top of the fact that if your company is already having diversity issues, you are actually introducing more diversity issues into it. But my main issue with referral programs is that they make the process inequitable. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is a lot of companies have like very specific policies on how to treat referrals. And that means that every single referral that they get, they, the person will actually get their resume read. They probably will get a call back, even if they're not qualified and they will be pushed into the interview process within the very first 48 hours, 24 hours, depending on the company policy, right? That's not the same treatment that we are giving a regular, between a millionaire quotes, outside candidate. So referral programs, they need to be reassessed completely as well. Yeah, they just create more. I just like, if you think of your immediate network, most likely your immediate network is made up of people who are most like you. Yeah, with and that doesn't mean there's anything bad about you. You're going to gravitate towards people. So I read this analogy once where it's like when somebody is very different from you, the ledge or like the mountain or the the gap that you have to cross is so much bigger. And for humans, yeah. it's hard for us to conceptualize crossing that like big gap to like meet the person closer to where they are because they're so different from you. So instead of that, a lot of us have networks that are just like you. And so if you're going to refer people, they're probably going to be just like you. Exactly. So the way the way that I usually explain referral programs is systematic affinity bias. You are just institutionalizing affinity bias. That's what you're doing. Three out of four social marketers are women, but they only earn 76 cents for every dollar a man working in social marketing makes. Hootsuite's 2023 Social Media Career Report digs into the gender pay gap, plus other challenges that social marketers face in their careers. Get all the details you need to attract, hire, and retain the best social marketers. Google Hootsuite Career Report for all the juicy insights. It's easy for employee engagement initiatives to fall flat when your leadership team doesn't understand the business impact. Don't let that happen in your organization. 15.5 is the performance management platform that helps HR leaders connect employee engagement back to business results. 15.5 makes it easy to collect employee feedback, find insights, and decide where to focus your engagement strategy for maximum impact. Visit 15.5.com slash demo to schedule a demo today. For the recruiters and the people ops professionals that are listening, like, are there any tools that you would even recommend that to use to source and attract a diverse set of like a bigger and wider pool of candidates when you're thinking about recruiting? There are, and I'm just going to expand on this a little bit. The, the reason why I don't necessarily like to, you know, like recommend one or like this tool or that tool is because it really depends on where the company is within their journey, right? Because again, we were talking about like diversity recruiting at the very beginning of the conversation. And if you do diversity recruiting without inclusive and equitable hiring, your diverse talent is just not going to make it through the interview process. And if they actually do, they're probably going to leave very quickly because they're not going to be, you know, welcomed and included into, into the workplace and the conversation. Having said that, one of the things that I 
ask recruiters every single time, and I know that I've mentioned this before, is whenever you're sourcing for talent, we need to stop thinking about what is convenient for the recruiter. And we not we need to start thinking about where the talent is, where the historically excluded talent is. And that might mean something completely different depending on the industry, the type of role. So what that means is that sometimes we may not need to post a role on, on LinkedIn, as we all do. We might need to, you know, like join an online community and start nurturing community and nurturing connections and try to see if we can hire anyone from that community. We might want to partner with an event or an organization that is going to get us closer to the community that we want to hire from. Or we may want to, you know, like look into our processes first and see if even our job descriptions are going to be inclusive of the talent that, that we are hiring. Having said that, there there are a couple of organizations that I absolutely love. Like Hire Black is one of the organizations that I love dearly. I've partnered with them in the past. I think that they're great. And then Tecaria, it's an online community yeah. for Latina talent in, in tech and tech adjacent type of roles. I mean, they're amazing as well. But again, it really depends on what the company is trying to do and what they've done first in order to properly attract and include the talent that they're trying to hire. Yeah, and I love that you bring up the point that like you can do your best to create like diverse and, and inclusive hiring. You can try all that inclusive hiring practices, but if the company itself does not have inclusive internal practices, you're essentially setting up the candidates that you hired to fail. Right. They're yeah. going to end up in an yeah. environment that doesn't support them, that doesn't include them. They won't have a sense of belonging and they'll potentially leave quite quickly. If they even make it through the interview process, because something again, and I know that that I kind of like circle back to the same topic, but something that I've learned um, recently, and I can't remember the exact percentage, but it was a very, very high number that recent graduates and junior talent did not even understand the job descriptions that they were reading. And the reason behind it is whenever we write our job descriptions without building them from an inclusive and equitable and accessible point of view, we are just writing them from our point of view and our experience. And probably we've been in our industry for years and maybe decades. And we are not using language that is welcoming to someone that is new to this industry. And maybe they're not even recent graduates. Maybe it's someone that is trying to shift careers, right? So it starts even before we start interviewing talent. Yeah. So like the entire system needs to be rebuilt. I think there's like tools out there that check to see if your JD is or your job description is inclusive. Yeah. So that's, there's probably a million tools out there. But I think about that. So often we have a line in our work week ones that say like, even if you don't qualify for all of these and you're still interested, please apply because it's like women and underrepresented groups apply to jobs differently. Like sometimes we read them like women, I think yeah. self-select out because we're like, oh, we don't meet all of those qualifications. So I can't apply exactly. for it. And so if that's like what yeah. you're trying to do, like step one of inclusive hiring, like look at your job descriptions. Like what are you doing with those that you could start there? Exactly. Exactly. And, and then it's actually true, like women don't apply to a role if they don't cover like almost 100% of the qualifications that we list, while men actually apply when they cover only like 50%. So th that alone is creating like a huge gap, right? 
I'm so not saying because like, like inclusive not. hiring is looking at the entire thing. It's just not only looking at where we'll look for talent. It's just, okay, how we make this entire process inclusive for the talent that we want to hire. It's so fascinating thinking like I've listened to a few podcasts about how people apply for jobs differently because I never really thought about it because I read a job description. I'm like, oh, maybe I've done that. I'll just apply. Like I do that all the time now because I'm like, I've read the stat so many times that women won't apply that I'm like, I will not let that be me. I will apply even if it's just one thing that I've done. But it's also that underrepresented groups approach job applying also differently. And so like LinkedIn may be popular with one subset of people, but other people might utilize job boards. They might utilize communities. So really building that partnership with job boards and organizations that like you want to have those people in your org could be really impactful here. A hundred percent. And I'm part of like multiple online communities. And one of the things that I see happen and the conversation that happens all the time, especially again with historically excluded talent, and again, this is part of the conversation that I'm seeing. I don't think that there is a lot of like actual data to back this up, but the conversations that I'm seeing is that they're actually choosing not to apply to jobs on LinkedIn or job boards that are actually looking to build a relationship with a company or the recruiter first to know whether that role or that company is going to be, you know, inclusive and equitable and all of those things before they even consider applying to a role. So Again, recruiting, we, it's, it's an outdated practice. Like, even if we have recruiters that are, you know, like, yeah, I'm, I'm no longer posting. I'm, I'm like doing like the active outreach and I'm sourcing and I'm sourcing for diverse talent between a million quotes. Even that approach is outdated. I could probably say this to blue in the face. I really think hiring is just the way we hire feels very broken and yeah. it seems to almost always give us an outcome that we might not even want. And so if you have all of all these people experiencing this the same, it's like, I wonder why we have not changed the way we apply for jobs. Like I know habits are hard to break and that once we get used to something, we're probably not going to change it. But this to me just seems like one we would want to change. Yeah. yeah. But we don't have time or ever do it. I know. I think that there are like many, many different reasons why that hasn't changed yet. And at the end of the day, I I do think again, like habits are very hard to break, but also like talent, like all of like the talent disciplines are usually the disciplines within a company that receive the less funding and the less support by executive and executive teams. So why would you change a legacy system that yes it's broken but it's it's working right because we are still hiring talent yeah right like talent are still coming through the door so it's a larger conversation like it's it's part of the conversation of you know we were talking on linkedin um with a couple of uh colleagues yesterday about so many executive leaders still asking for you know like the business case for dni or the business case for inclusive hiring, which, I mean, let's not anymore. But that's the same case for hiring and for inclusive hiring. Like, from an executive point of view, why would you want to invest your time and your money and all of the things that you need to invest if the process that you already have, it's still working? I mean, you're still hiring talent. Yeah, kind of working. I hope to, I aspire to never have to make the business case for DEI again. It just feels... Really, I refuse. Uh, 
it's just icky. I'm like, no, I'm not doing this. Just- I, I refuse. I mean, I know that this is a privileged point of view as well now that I'm outside of like a corporate role and I'm consulting with different companies, but I do not work with companies who, who don't get it, right? Like I work with companies who want to get it, who want to make it better. But if you're going to come in and you're going to ask me for a business case on why diversity, equity, and inclusion is important, I'm not the person to work with you. Like, I refuse. I'm not interested. Just going to unsubscribe from that here today. Okay, but let's say an organization is really like resistant to change and not fully committed to inclusive hiring. What would you do to convince the leadership and actually drive the change? Is it possible? I think it can be. Again, at the end of the day, it really depends on how open like the CEO or like the executive is. And the reason behind it is there are some executives that only talk finance, right? So one of the things that I usually bring up when this conversation takes place is I usually look back at the numbers from a hiring and attrition and retention point of view. I mean, there is a lot of evidence that actually shows that whenever you are building inclusive talent practices from beginning to end, you can hire more talent, you can hire talent faster, and your talent stays for longer. That is one of the data points that we can show. We can show them like, hey, you are not doing this, and this is the amount of talent, the number of talent that you lost in this last year, whatever that is. And this is the amount of money that you actually had to spend to backfill and replace all of this talent. So if that is the situation, they usually start to listen a little bit more, but they're still listening from a finance and numbers point of view. They're still that they're not listening from a diversity, equity, and inclusion point of view. And that takes a lot of work. And sometimes, unfortunately, in some cases, it cannot be achieved. Like yeah. a different conversation and a different type of change has to happen in the organization first. It's really hard to make people care about things that they don't want to care about. They don't care. <laughs> and if someone doesn't care, like I I hate saying this, but like if someone doesn't care, like no matter what you do, you might not actually be able to drive meaningful change. I think the best example I could give is I wrote this whole newsletter about unfair treatment at work. And I thought it was just like a brilliant, beautiful newsletter. So I was like, people get treated unfairly all the time at work. People feel that things are unfair, but I can't talk about fairness without talking about systemic racism. And I said, here's systemic racism, because you have to understand like what system we exist in and how what is fair to you might not be fair to others. And people might not even have access to the thing that is fair. So I talk a little bit about systemic racism. And I had someone write me back and say, systemic racism is not real. And it's a construct of it's a construct of the current administration. And I honestly was like, okay, you're allowed to believe whatever you want to believe. But like, yeah, that's literally not true. Like, we we have seen this like it, it is a yeah. widely recognized thing. And so there are people like that. And there's I'm not going to say that's a good person or a bad person. I don't know that person's life. I just know they don't believe in that. And there are a lot of people yeah. like that that don't believe in something or don't think that something is the right thing to do or are not interested in it. And I think if you work in one of those organizations and you find that out, nothing you do is going to drive meaningful change because that person nothing. might not believe in the thing you are trying to achieve. There is not enough education or training that you can do to make someone care. 
And especially when the person that doesn't care is the CEO or, you know, like the higher executive at that role, at, at the company, at that organization. And it's unfortunate, right? And it's and I think that we've seen it. We are still seeing it now. Like in, in 2020, like every single company was desperate to hire diverse talent and they were like all about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And now two slash three years later, all of that progress is either disappearing, they're no longer investing in those and those programs. I mean, not every single company, but the companies that are not investing in those programs anymore. I mean, it's it's quite telling, yeah. right? That there is a reason why they stopped doing it in the same way that they were doing it in 2020. Yeah, there's a Washington Post article about this. Like in 2020, they people submitted or pledged billions of dollars to fix the DEI problem at in workplaces. And three years later, they find not much has changed. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm like, okay, so like, what does that tell you? Like, it's not a money problem. It's like, we as human beings, also, all of us have different lived experiences. We all grew up believing the things we believed in, like, everything shapes your lived experience from where you grew up to what your parents believed in to your yeah. religious affinity to your cultural affinity all those things impact it and then we end up in the workplace in leadership positions and positions of power and despite yeah. everything all of those lived experiences actually contribute to how you behave as a leader and like you need the leader buy-in for that change and so it's tough like i uh, i want the work never can stop though. That's the other thing. Like the people, whoever's listening to this, like it is hard to make change, but there are a lot of people out there that want to, that are committed to this, that want to make hiring inclusive and their organizations inclusive. And we just like can't stop doing the work. Exactly. Yeah. And there's so many organizations that are, that are still like doing the work in the same way or even more committed than they were in, in 2020. And of course, we don't see, you know, like a lot of news articles about them because usually what sells is what's not working yep. and look at all the money that we invested and it didn't work. But there are so many organizations that are doing wonderful job. I mean, of course, it's still so much work to be done. You can just, you you can't deconstruct and rebuild like centuries of racism and, and systematic issues in just like two years, honestly. Um <laughs> So it's it's still going to take some time and some effort. Shout out to the recruiters out there that are doing this work day in and day out. Everyone is like so quick to shit on recruiters. And I'm like, you don't understand. They no, have to don't be, understand. They have to be exceptional. And then they care about the candidates, too. So like if you're a recruiter out there, just like shout out to you because I know how hard this work is. I know you fight the battles behind closed doors and I know you're trying to do what's best for everybody. And that job can be so tiring. There are a couple of things that we usually don't even think about when we think about recruiters. Like, first of all, and, and again, we've seen it happening a lot, like 2020, 2021, and this year. Like, when companies are doing well, they want to hire recruiters like there is no tomorrow. And then whenever they're losing like $1, recruiters are the first ones to go. And we are seeing that, like, it's real. The data is out there. Like, it's it's out there. The other thing that we don't necessarily think about a lot is recruiters don't often receive any training. They usually don't have the tools and resources that they actually need to do their job. Because again, this goes back to something that we were talking about before, like companies usually don't necessarily invest in talent teams because talent teams used to like 
they're seen as not billable talent as like disciplines that are not necessarily making the company money so companies do not invest on those teams so whenever we talk about like the many things that a recruiter needs to do they might be doing all of the things that they're doing and they're probably doing it on post-its in a google sheet they may not even have like a proper platform to actually follow up with candidates and to see all of the applications and to actually manage their workload which usually is bananas (laughs) we do recruiters dirty literally we do we we do we really do and there's so many on the market right now and it is infuriating to see it because the second the hiring turns around. The second people decide to recruit it again, they're going to be running for those recruiters. And I'm going to oh, be like, yeah. where where were you when they were laid off for six, eight, 12 months? Where were you? Like it, And yeah. I do think, I've said this a lot, recruiters have one of the most transferable skill sets because they have to be able to handle things like negotiations, conversations, stakeholder management, context shifting. They're shifting from internal, external. Like There's a lot of potential for recruiters to do something other than recruiting. And so if they're in there and they're doing it, like show them some respect. A hundred percent and project management, like every single hiring process, like every single role, it's a project with multiple moving pieces. So that's project management. And some companies recruiters have to sell as well. So they have like selling skills. So yes, there is nothing else that I can say about that. Yeah. Hell yeah. Power to all the recruiters out there. We appreciate you so much. Yeah. Um, okay, so we've had we've had fun together this hour. I have yeah, one one last question to ask you. We talked about so much today. God, I'm so thankful for you in my life. But what is the one HR hill that you will die on? It's the exact same thing that I said at the very beginning of the call. Like diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I'm going to add recruiting. They shouldn't report into HR. Yes, let's work together. Let's collaborate together. But we cannot let a policy to block our progress. Yeah. I don't think that's like I'm in HR. I'm in HR and people ops. And I will tell you, I don't love recruiting. I think it's really hard. And it's like not the skill set I, I instantly want to do. That's the other thing. Like it's not on my mind a lot. And so, like, if it's not on my mind a lot, like, why should I be the person managing it? I mean, I am because we are a small startup. But, like, ideally in the future, that would not be me because that's – Right. It's a different – it's a whole different set of things that you are thinking through, whereas I'm focused on, like, the employee experience. But the two go hand in hand. I do always say, like, they have to work together to make sure that – Yeah, of course. You can can be selling something that then it's it's not what it's actually happening, right? So – Yes, hand in hand. Yes, let's work together. But let the experts do the job that they're experts in. Let them do the job that they were hired for. Hell yeah. And also hire them correctly and inclusively and set them up. Yes. Yes. (laughs) All the things. All the things. All the things. Okay, Danny, tell the listeners how they can reach out to you and find you on socials. Yeah. So I'm like every day, literally on LinkedIn. So you can find me. uh, My LinkedIn is Daniela G. Herrera. Or to make it easier on link three, yeah. DEI by Danny, you'll have all of my socials and only one place. You'll find also uh, different ways to work with me and collaborate with me as well. Yeah, don't worry. We're going to link to all that stuff too in the show notes. So you awesome. can read it there. You should follow Danny on LinkedIn and your Medium articles are 
chock full of great things. If you are interviewing or trying to rebuild hiring practices, I highly recommend following Danny. Your your content is fire. I just, I'm grateful we get to know each other. I'm grateful I get to see you next week in person. Oh my God, That's really so fun. Sorry to everyone listening to us fangirl over each other. We won't do that again. <laughs> but thank you so much. Maybe Danny. we will. We will. Maybe we will. Yeah, we know whatever the fuck we want to do. Whatever we can do it. Yeah. Um, thank you so much, Danny. I appreciate you so much. Of course. Me too. Thanks for tuning in. Keep up with all the latest HR resources by subscribing on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen. And if you love I Hate It Here, tell an HR friend. I'll see you next time.